The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, Trident Room host Captain Daisha Treese sits down with Lieutenant Colleen Wilmington. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Trident Room podcast series. I'm your host, Captain Deja Treese. And with me today is Lieutenant Colleen Wilmington, who is a talk officer here at the Naval Postgraduate School. Thank you for joining us. What is talk? That has been the question amongst the podcast members for weeks, if not months now. And we're finally here sitting down with an official talk officer to talk about it. So um, before we get into that discussion, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and give us a brief overview of your career timeline? Absolutely. So Lieutenant Colleen Wilmington, I commissioned through the University of Kansas, ROTC, uh, back in 2015. I commissioned as a surface warfare officer METOC option. And so what's important about that is that not only set it to where I went to a aircraft carrier or an amphib, our big decks first, instead of a cruiser destroyer, and it uh, secured my lateral transfer to meteorology after I earned my surface warfare pin. So I went to USS Nimitz, based out of Bremerton, Washington, for my first tour. I was the deck division officer, so small boats, anchors, non-skid, paint side of the ship sort of stuff, not really doing a lot of the meteorology oceanography but there are oh four meteor uh, metox mm-hmm. on board the big decks uh, whether attached to the ship itself or attached to the admiral's staff and so we're able to learn from them and that's our first mentorship opportunity mm-hmm. right out the bat so i um, did qualify as surface warfare and i laterally transferred in 2018 my first metox job was at the Naval Oceanography Anti-Submarine Warfare Center in Yokosuka, Japan. So out there, we're not only doing resource protection, so telling what the weather is, Mm -hmm. uh, but we're also doing anti-submarine warfare. So we go out on the ships uh, attached to the the destroyer squadron, and we support them with all things anti-submarine warfare. Excuse me. From there, uh, I went to the National Ice Center out of Suitland, Maryland. I was there for just under three years, and now I'm here at the New Postgraduate School. So, very diverse, mm. uh, talk career already, <laughs> but that is one of the things about talk, which yeah. I still haven't defined it, uh, which is meteorology and oceanography, and that's okay. it. And it's uh, not necessarily officer, because we very much depend on our aerographer's mates, our AGs, mm-hmm. um, to do a lot of the subject matter expertise. We depend on our civilians who may have been in the military, may not have been, but have that expertise and have really honed their craft to support the fleet. Okay. Thank you for that. And just as an Army officer myself, I'm always like fascinated with the different jobs and the unique skill sets, like within the different branches, DOD. Um, And so for the non-Navy listeners out there, METOC stands for meteorologists, Meteorology and oceanography. Meteorology and oceanography. Okay. And can you give like a one-liner of what you all do? 
So naval oceanography is part of the information warfare community. So what we do is we collect data across the spectrum from the seafloor to the upper atmosphere, and we analyze it. We use it to do exploitation, to do forecasting, to provide services, whether it's special forces, mine laying, precise time, ice with yeah. the ice center. Um, it's really, really b- broad spectrum of work that we're doing. Yeah. And then can you just briefly describe or explain like what the chain of command looks like or what encompasses like a METOC section or operation cell? I don't know the right terminology, but. Exactly. Yeah. So there are 14 tenant commands okay. that are all under Navy Meteorology and Oceanography Command um, out of Stennis, Mississippi. So what that is, so not only ours is, it, so we, we'll call it CINMOC, which is Commander, mm-hmm. Naval Me- Meteorology and Oceanography Command, but it's also a Maritime Operations Center. Um, so you also see it as CTG 80.7, so it's just a commander task group. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it makes it to where uh, we are a ready um, resource to the fleet around the world. What do you need? You need this bathymetry data. You need this hydrography data. You need this typhoon track. Yeah. And everything goes through the mock, the CTG 80.7, and gets distributed to, to, and tasked out to our commands around the world. Wow. Okay. And then so during my just initial Google search, if you will, of what a meat talk is, I stumbled upon the joint publication 3-59, which is the meteorological and oceanographic operations. And it talked about how METOC operations is divided into two key functions, characterization, and then you touched on the exploitation. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit more about that and how it shapes the training and the operational environment? So that characterization is really looking at, you know, where where are we going? Where are, Mm -hmm. where's the evolution, the exercise taking place? Okay, so start with my climatology. Now I'm going to look at, you know, break it down. What what equipment am I taking out there? What am I going out there with a helo? Am I going out there with fixed wing aircraft? Am I expecting landing forces and breaking down? Okay, what are my capabilities? Where are they operating? Are we do we need EM spectrum mm-hmm. data? Um, what time of the year are we going? So going back to the climo, am yeah. I worried about big storms? Am I worried about um, low tides? Am I worried about reefs? Do I yeah. have do I have data about this and then it's taking all of that uh, and providing it to our commander um, that we're supporting and so as as folks leaving the naval postgraduate school we're expected to not only have that idea of hey where do all of these different products come from Mm -hmm. but now i have an idea uh you know more insight on on maybe one or another that was you know the central focus of my thesis, and I can you know better provide for those those commanders. Okay, thank you for that. I feel like your job is tough in the the aspect that like you're always going off like preparing for the unpredictable, but like utilizing prediction like all of your tools. And I guess in my mind, I feel like that can be a little bit challenging in a way. Well, hopefully it's not unpredictable because yeah. then we're not probably not doing our job yeah. the best that we can. Um, but but right. So we're what we want to do is we want to, <clears throat> uh, you know, the, the thought that's in my head, that old 
uh, cartoon movie robots, mm-hmm. see a need, fill a need. Yeah. So that's that's really where the me talks step in is, you know, how can we better use our environment to support this evolution, this mm-hmm. exercise? You know, do we, so we can balance our risk and our objectives yeah. to for the best possible outcome. Yeah, and then just touching back on you know your your introduction, I want to hear more about your experience um, during your time at the Naval Ice Center, and through my Google search, um, there was an article like it was your face, like just oh, the no. first thing that popped up, which was really <laughs> cool to read. Um, but it just talked about your experience uh, when you were the officer in charge of a meteorological team to support the Navy's ice exercise, and so. Could you just explain the overall mission of the Naval Ice Center? Is it mainly to test the capabilities of the Navy within the Arctic region or geared towards like the study and the trends of the Arctic environment? Really neither. Oh. The Navy Ice the Naval Naval Ice Center, National Ice Center mm-hmm. is a tri tri agency organization composed of Navy, Coast Guard, and NOAA personnel and really what they're doing is providing global to ta- tactical scale ice products and forecasting mm-hmm. to support um, anyone who's going into the ice, whether that's cruise ships, whether that's submarines, oh. whether that's planes, and really letting them know you know, where the ice is, using what products, what, what forecasting models we have to let them know, you know where we think the ice is going to be, where it's receding, working with the Coast Guard and the iceberg patrol and the iceberg patrol so that we can let these ships know what to expect when they're at when they're in the ice the national ice center slash naval ice center uh, there's only about 50 people there and most of them are civilians and so what their task really is is providing that operational product Mm -hmm. to those who are going into the ice whether that's in the great lakes whether that's the arctic whether that's antarctica and they're the only ice center in the world that actually provides that global coverage and global analysis. Yeah. Most ice centers around the world only look at you know, what's in their economic exclusive zone mm-hmm. um, or what's on their coast. So we're the only ones who look at the world as a whole. Yeah, wow. As far as research goes, because there's only 50 of us, 50 of them, uh, a lot of that research is actually completed by universities. It's completed by NOAA, NOAA research groups, um, NSIDC, which is the National Snow and Ice Data Center. And so then we take a lot of that data and then turn it into an operational product. That's awesome. Awesome information. Um, and then can you explain, like, I guess, what an ISEX is and what your day-to-day operations were during that time? So ISEX now is actually run by the university, or not sorry, university, the Undersea Warfare Development Center. Mm -hmm. And so the big name that you'll see is the Arctic Submarine Laboratory out of San Diego. And it's a biannual exercise. They go up every other year Mm -hmm. um, to test the equipment and test Mm -hmm. capabilities, uh, really to provide better support for submarines. So I went up with a team. Uh, I had two aerographers mates from Fleet Weather Center Norfolk master ice analyst from the National Ice Center. And we basically split our team into two. So there were two of us on the ice at all times. Uh, so we got up there about Valentine's Day and we stayed 
I came off the ice March 23rd. And then when you say on and off the ice, can you kind of explain, I guess, to put yeah. like so a picture it, in people's heads? So what it is is we go up to Dead Horse, Alaska, kind of our base of operations. Um, and that's a it's an oil field, basically. Okay. And that's that's all that's there. People, nobody lives there. It's it's a camp. Um, it's the end of the Dalton Highway. You can start southern Alaska. Um, ice road truckers, super yeah. familiar with Dalton yeah, Highway. Yeah. yeah. So we're at the very end of it. Well, then ISEX finds, finds an ice flow um, within 200 nautical miles of Dead Horse, and we establish a working camp there. We have to be within 200 miles in mm-hmm. order for helos to make emergency evacuations, okay, okay. fuel and whatnot. Uh, but it could be anywhere in that in that region. And yeah. so if you look at a map, that's a lot of area. Like you really could be like from Barrow, yeah. Alaska, all the way into Canadian territory. Uh, so our job as from the NIC was to find a multi-year ice flow. So that's ice that survived uh, more than two summers, basically. Mm. So theoretically, it's thicker. Mm-hmm. Um, multi-year ice is you could you could melt it and you could drink it. Um, where first year ice is very very salty still. Okay. So you don't want to drink it without um, something some filters and whatnot. But you need first-year ice for the planes to land on because first-year ice is smoother. It mm-hmm. hasn't been beaten up by the by the winters, and it's ridged, yeah. and it's rough. Um, so finding a spot that's that's capable of, ho- of hosting both of those things, it's a very, over a very yeah. broad area, and you don't want it to drift into, um, you know, more active areas mm-hmm. over the course of the camp so that it will survive for the duration of camp. Yeah. So once we got up there, when we sent out pioneering flights, went out, we, they ran uh, sleds over the ice to see how thick it was. Wow. We actually found a camp, found a campsite, took equipment out, and we were watching what weather we could. And we said, hey, you know, looking at everything, and there's some strong weather coming through and it might like we might go into blizzard conditions and we did and so we hunkered down in the hotel for for a day mm-hmm. um thankfully it was a, a smaller blizzard um but then when we got out and we went back up to look at how the camp had survived it had fractured along the runway wow. and so now our runway was no longer viable so we had to retrieve our gear wow. and start over oh, man uh and that's really what we were up there for is to let them know these are the conditions that we're looking at for the <clears throat> for the aircraft. Um, these are the conditions that we're looking at for how fast the current is going, mm-hmm. so we know, you know, what tonals are going to work the, for our acoustics, where where we might drift along the current, um, and just doing that constantly. So mm-hmm. I was I was up on watch from zero six to twenty two hundred. And that was my shift. Yeah. Um, and then even after that shift, I was calling the National Weather Service, uh, Alaskan Aviation Department, Alaskan Aviation Department, um, to find out what they were seeing, mm-hmm. so that I could make sure that my team that was back in Dead Horse knew what weather was coming into them because yeah. if the planes couldn't leave Dead Horse, then nobody was coming out to support us. Wow. And so then we needed to shift our operations for the day. Yeah. And so I guess, so how long, what was the duration of being isolated on a 
the ice, <laughs> if you will. So we, when we established camp, I think uh, around around February 23rd, and um, I was one of the last groups off, except for the the core mm-hmm. Arctic Sublab folks. Um, and so it was it was about a month. Wow. We were we only were delayed uh, four or five days with the blizzard that came through and finding another and finding another flow. Yeah. Which because we were watching it, we're like, hey, <laughs> watch our options and you know whatever survives is where we'll go. Yeah. Go out, and make sure it's good, and, and but what, you still have to do a lot of that, you know, running the sleds and everything. Yeah. And what other challenges aside from the weather did you did you all face? Up there, because I imagine being just in the Arctic environment is way different than being like on the mainland, if you will. So you have communication. So we were out there with Iridium satellites. So we were depending on those really to have more consistent comms mm-hmm. back. But those are those are limited still. You still have to have coverage from the satellite. You have to have enough yeah. data to cover you know, uh, messages going back and forth. Uh, whether or not the planes are going to land, because there were multiple times the planes flew out and then and couldn't land wow. and turned around and went back home. And so whatever was on that flight, whether it was people, whether it was equipment, whether it was food, we have to wait another day. Yeah. Um, they, the cold was there, mm-hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't – like we even actually saw a positive 20-degree day and we were expecting – negative 45 yeah. for most of it uh, so then that added that added stress to all of us like what you know that's adding infection fog and you know more air like, well, how how is this going to affect the ice flow itself are we going to see more more active movement and but you're out there by yourself with yeah. whatever you can you came out there we, with what well, you came out with there mm-hmm. with um we saw three so one of the I got to be part of the testing crew uh, for ORCX, which is just the practice exercise a year oh, before, okay. uh, where it's primarily they uh, they test everything on the lake first and then we go out to the sea ice. Uh, so one of the things I got to see when, when I was up there for ORCX was how they plan to move the tents in the event that we had a fracture at camp, which has happened before in the mm-hmm. past. And they made it to where you know we basically just hook up the tents to the snow plot to the snowmobiles and you drag the tent and move that happened three times while we were there wow. uh, to include one that actually went under my rack we traced the crack the next morning and i was wow. like that is underneath my rack we need to move this tent let's go uh, but it made it to where we had we were able to stay there longer we didn't have to scrap operations with the first fracture um you have you have to so like I said, multi-year ice, you can melt down, but you can also just drill through the ice and do use, you know, use an osmosis machine and get your fresh water that way. Well, if you run out of gas, mm-hmm. if the hole freezes up, if the pipe, if the tubing, whatever you're using breaks, if the, the heater that you put in the hole to keep it there goes out, you just start over again. And so you're already in those cold, cold conditions mm-hmm. and you're trying to do a lot of these operations and so you really just have to be mindful of how long have I been out here what mm-hmm. you know can I take breaks or does this have yeah. to be like really consistent going to, you know can I call for help and get someone else out here so we can take shifts in doing this uh, but because you're up there and there were only 60 people on the ice at any time uh, 
you, you really learn how to work as a team. Like mm-hmm. Nobody is above, you know, emptying the, the latrine. Nobody is above doing food prep. And nobody's above, you know, loading and unloading the the planes as they yeah. come in. It's one team, one, one fight. fight. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And then just my final question, um, based on your experiences, your research, um, and just your gained knowledge, how is the Arctic geopolitically and strategically important to the Navy or DOD? The Arctic is geo- geopolitically and strategically important because as the ice recedes and grows, because you know we have seen a shift over time of that ice uh, not reaching the expanses that we expected to, but we've also seen changes in thickness. We've seen mm-hmm. changes in volume. We've seen changes in composition. But if the ice recedes far enough, that opens up trade routes. So then it's contested, whether it's, you know, planting flags at the bottom of the ocean and declaring ownership over <clears throat> over the seafloor, whether it's uh, watch, watching as more biologics come into the Arctic and that becomes a new fisheries area, um, cruise ships going through. Um, all of those activities, because the Arctic is still changing, we don't know for sure how it's going to change. We don't know, you know, the ice might not go as far, but it could be deeper. Mm-hmm. It could be th- it could be denser. Um, there could be wildlife in the, more wildlife in the ice, depending on the ice. And then you have to watch out for those and recording mammal strikes, and um, which hopefully don't happen, but as we're not as familiar with operating in that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Navy is going to become more important in those environments because we don't have a lot of experience right now on the surface. Most of our experience is subsurface and research. And um, we don't, the Navy doesn't have an icebreaker. All of our icebreakers are owned by the Coast Guard. Mm. Most of them are deployed in the Great Lakes. There are only really two medium and heavy icebreakers that go to the the poles, and that's the Healy and the Polar Star, both of which are very old um, for ships that are going into that hazardous condition and breaking through the ice instead of trying to avoid the ice, which is what most ships are doing is trying to avoid the ice. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for answering all of my questions. Was there anything else that you want to bring up or highlight about Um, me talk? This sounds like a very fascinating job. I mean, it's just it's the fact that we all come through the Naval Postgraduate School not only gives us a uh, more camaraderie, we don't all come through the postgraduate school. I mm-hmm. should clarify, we, we're split between MIT, Woods Hole, and NPS. <clears throat> but all of our officers go through one of those two institutions. Um, but what that gives us is um, a focus for our thesis on, theoretically, mm-hmm. for something that we saw as a junior officer. And we said, hey, we want this is a, this is a problem, we want to fix it. Or I know I'm going to be doing this. Let me see if I can change this situation. Yeah. Um, and having that under your belt and then going back to the fleet and being ready to better support um, is phenomenal. Yeah. Thank you so much again. We will see you all in the next episode. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. For more information about today's guest and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room Podcast has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. 
For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tritonpodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tritonpodcast.com.